My name is Georgette McMichael, and um, my background um, is actually as a therapist. Um, I, I was thinking about this earlier today when we had that you know, break, which some of you probably made really good productive time um, with between our last session or lunch and this session. I, I went back and took a nap. But, you know, because my brain was refreshed as I, as I came to, um, I thought, this is so interesting that I think every one of the speakers that's here this week is not just talking about a subject they're passionate about. They're not just talking about a subject that they're knowledgeable, knowledgeable about. They're also talking about a subject that they've lived and experienced. So I deal with depression and anxiety personally. And so this isn't just something that I'm giving um, my life experience and my head knowledge to. Um, I, I can share about this from my personal life experience too. And I'm guessing that you're here in this room because you either um, are dealing with anxiety and depression yourself, or you have a loved one or family member. Um, well, let's assume they're loved also, they're your family. But you know what I mean. There's someone dear in your life who may also be um, dealing with anxiety and depression. And so you're either here on behalf of another or behalf of yourself. Um, some of us may just be here because it's an interesting subject, and that's okay, too. So whatever brought you here, um, we're glad. I wanted to know um, if someone would maybe just open us in prayer. And if anybody's willing to do that, just go for it. Just start us out. Mm -hmm. Amen. Who was that who prayed? Tell me your name. Brenda. Thank you, Brenda. There's lots of seats right up here in the front row. It's like when you're late to church, you have to sit in front. Um, or late to school, you know, like they make you sit. Oh, no, please don't. Don't worry. I made the joke about being late, not, um, not to embarrass you, so I hope I didn't do that. Um, the only thing about, yeah, I'm just, I'm so anxious about this. The only thing about sitting in the front is like you don't have anything to put your feet on, so yeah, um, do whatever you need to do to be comfortable in the front row. I know, I don't know about you, but um, at, at, I always put my feet like, because my legs are long enough to reach the ground when I'm standing up, but not when I'm sitting. So I always put my feet like right up here, and I'm always a little worried, you know, like I'll, I'll nip somebody in the butt while they're sitting there. <laughs> anyway, so do whatever you need to do to be comfortable. And that includes everybody in the room. If you need to stand up, um, you know, because we're all anxious in this room, you might need to pace or do whatever you need to do. Um, Self-care is the most important part, right? So do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. Um, I mentioned that my background is as a therapist, um, um, but I 
currently work for an organization called, it's a nonprofit called Nurse Family Partnership. And we pair up a nurse and a first time at risk mom in a two and a half year relationship. So from the time the mom finds out that she's pregnant, um, she gets to have this nurse in her life. It's purely voluntary, uh, no cost to the mom. And for two and a half years, that nurse meets with the mom every other week in her home. And they work on um, things that we hope will impact their um, pregnancy outcomes. So health or pre healthier pregnancies, maybe that's a reduction in drugs. Maybe it's actually being able to um, quit substances altogether. Um, we work with them on what we call infant and um, child outcomes, so healthier outcomes for the baby and developing um, infant. And then um, uh, our third um, goal or outcome, there's one tier right in the middle. There's kind of two up here if you, yeah, wherever works. Um, also then on the mom's self-sufficiency because in two and a half years, this nurse is gonna leave her life. So we want the mom to know how to fish for herself. And so there's a lot of work that we do around the mom's life skills. Um, hopefully in somewhere in that two and a half years, she may have stable housing. Um, she may have gone back to school. She might um, be off the welfare system. So all of those things are things that we're um, hoping for. And my job is to actually teach the nurses how to work with the clients. About 80% of our clients have mental health issues, which is part of the reason why they're struggling um, with life. And oftentimes their pregnancies were not um, voluntary or invited. So um, that's what I do. Nurse Family Partnership is actually all over the world. Uh, we have a very strong presence here in California, in the Bay Area, and all the way into the Central Valley. And so we're in 42 states, uh, five tri sorry, six tribal nations, so we count those as separate entities from whatever state they're in by their request, and then six nations around the world. So that's, that's what I do right now. Uh, they, they get invited like they might hear about it through the WIC clinic or through some public health um, service. Um, sometimes they're referred by their OBGYNs who um, we might have two chairs together right up here if you all want to sit by each other. So anyway, that's what I do now. I used to work with Youth for Christ. Some of you might have heard of Youth for Christ. And as part of that work, I had the opportunity to live and um, work in 11 countries around the world and in most of the states in the United States. And here's something that I've discovered. We all have the same issues worldwide. We are all struggling to, um, if we're Christians, to be more like Jesus. And we are all dealing with um, the same resources. So it was interesting to me that no matter what our, um, whether first world, third world, emerging world, whatever our circumstances, we oftentimes are struggling with the same um, issues. And it's a common bond that we have no matter where we live, no matter what our nationality, our ethnicity. Um, so that was kind of cool to discover that throughout my life. So anyway, that's me. Enough about me because it's really not the most important thing here by any stretch of the imagination. 
So again, I mentioned that you're probably here in this room because you're either struggling with anxiety and depression yourself, or you have um, someone in your life um, that is struggling with this. And uh, just a little uh, background, when I use the word anxiety, I'll be talking also about depression because they oftentimes go hand in hand. What we know is that if you have depression, you almost always have anxiety as a partner to depression. Anxiety, just anxiety by itself, uh, when you're diagnosed with that primarily, you don't always have depression. But when you have depression, you almost always have anxiety too. So I'm gonna use the word anxiety to sort of be an overarching word, and I mean by that anxiety, depression, or any combination thereof. So as we're talking about it, I'll oftentimes just use the word anxiety to simplify how many words come out of my mouth. So I put some statistics up here on the screen. And um, interestingly enough, these are national or, or world statistics. And so they're based on whenever the last research um, study was done. So these are not going to necessarily be 2019 um, studies because those haven't been published yet. But what we know from the published literature on depression and anxiety, um, I'm going to start with the teen population. Now, in America, we're also seeing a lot of diagnosis around anxiety and depression in children. Um, so I'm not going to go there. I'm going to start with the teen population because the anxiety and depression that we're seeing in teens is so exacerbated by other things going on in their life. And there's the hormones, there's the search for their own identity. I mean, you know, just the crisis of adolescence. Some of us are, are not that far away from adolescence ourselves. Other, others of us had such a traumatic um, adolescence, we'll remember it till Jesus returns. So, so <laughs> adolescence is usually fairly close to our heart. So we'll start there. And um, this, is, this is just a, a, the current research is telling us that about 30% of girls, adolescent girls, and 20% of adolescent boys are presenting with anxiety and depression. That's 6.3 million teens as of 2015. So we know that number has gone up into 2019. Significant number of our teens are struggling with depression. I know this personally. I mentioned um, that I struggle with anxiety and depression. And in my family, I can actually um, name it by generation. So I, I only know back to my grandmother's generation, both my grandmothers were orphans. So I don't know beyond that, but I can tell you that um, counting my granddaughter, there are four generations I'm aware of in my family and all four generations struggle with anxiety and or depression. So sometimes we do see that there's this familial pattern um, with this. It doesn't, uh, we don't always know why. It, uh, we have never found a genetic marker that tells us uh, why it's going generation. It might be, we don't know nature, nurture, and what all is involved there, but we do often see anxiety and depression running in a family pattern. Um, 
So when I think about my granddaughter, um, she is just turned 15, and she's been struggling with anxiety for about two years, where she's identified it um, by that word. And it's interesting because when I meet her friends and we have um, talks together, I'll hear them say things like, I'm so anxious, I'm just so anxious, I, I think I might need, I think I might need meds. And, and there, there's this almost like, um, panicked talk around anxiety. I don't know if you, any of you have some teens in your life and you've seen this pattern or recognized this speech, um, but it seems to be almost like, almost, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, this, this terrible to use this as an analogy, but um, there, was, there has been an increase in teen suicide. And, and it almost is like the popular thing to do, for want of a better way to describe it. Um, we also know that, that it tend, when you have teens who um, are suicidal, that it tends to sort of almost set up like a, a, sim, a sympathetic response in other teens. And I, I kind of feel like the same thing has happened around anxiety, um, that for whatever reason, teens are, in, are identifying themselves as anxious. They have zero coping skills to deal with their anxiety. And it's become this sympathetic response now where almost all teens are identifying themselves as anxious and unable to deal with it. So that's the teen population. Then we get to... Um, this is so iffy here. <laughs> um, then we get to the college age population. And um, again, this study was done in um, 2017. Um, they identified that about, um, um, let me make sure I get the statistic right. In the college population, let, uh, let me go here. 2011, 50% of college age students identified as anxious and were being diagnosed with anxiety. So that was 2011. By 2017, so six years later, same group did a study and identified it at 61%. At 11% increase in only six years. So we can see that for whatever reason, anxiety seems to be increasing. Are we recognizing it better? Is it that sympathetic reaction? Is it that people are, are identifying themselves as stressed and interpreting it as anxiety? Who knows? A, probably a variable of all of those things, but we see this increase. So all of us in this room are adults. Um, not all of us may act like it all the time, but chronologically anyway, we're adults. So let's talk about the adult population. Um, and this was really interesting. About 40 million adults, so this was a study done in 2018, 40 million adults were identified with anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorder, not just being anxious, anxiety disorder. And that's about 18% of the population in the US. The World Health Organization did their own study. So World Health Organization, who studies health um, behaviors worldwide, and they worldwide came up with the exact same statistics. So 18% in America, 18% worldwide. And I thought how interesting that is that worldwide, doesn't matter whether you're a first, this is not a first world phenomenon, I guess is the best way to say it. 
that even in emerging world countries and, and uh, countries that we would think of that might have high anxiety because of trauma, um, we're all presenting about the same level of anxiety. Interesting fact. Again, lots of variables may be playing into this. Um, we're not going to go there because this is in a research classroom and there's not enough time to talk about all the variables. Um, but I do think it's interesting that we're seeing this phenomenon that crosses um, socioeconomic groups, it crosses culture, it crosses ethnicity, um, and, and there it is. We do live in a broken world. We do know that, right? So some of us in this room are also seniors. We're not just adults, but we're also seniors. And let's just talk a little bit about, uh, this is a magnetic um, bracelet and I occasionally stick to myself. So if you notice this badge like has a life of its own, it's because it's stuck to my magnet. Um, so seniors, I bring this up because what happens is we have this big percentage, almost 30% of girls, 20% of boys in the teen years. About 18% um, in, uh, by the time we get to adulthood. And typically, we would think, well, that's probably normal because we have some better life experience. We might be able to cope better with our anxiety. Uh, we have <laughs> drugs, so better life through drugs, I always say. Um, so it's no surprise that as we get into the adult years, there might be fewer people who are um, uh, debilitated by anxiety. So we go from this 30 to 20 to 30 percent down to about 18 percent adulthood. Seniors, we go back up to 27 percent. And I think that's no big mystery, right? Um, because all of us think about, yeah, yeah. Uh, because we think about what in the world, how do I live? People are living longer and longer. My mom is 88 years old. She has run out of retirement money. Um, my sister and I are supporting her, which then makes us worried about, okay, if we're giving this money to mom, what's going to happen to my sister and I? I've only got one child. My sister has none. Puts an incredible burden on my daughter to be the one to take care of us. So each generation, uh, we're, we're more and more worried about what's happening at the end of our life. And we feel like um, we have limited resources to manage those things. So... We see depression, actually, and anxiety creeping up in our senior population, uh, which is kind of sad, you know, because you think we get into adulthood, it's kind of going down, and we think maybe that trend will continue, but it's not. It starts to climb again as we approach end of life. So that's the world statistics on it. We can't do a class without looking at what Hollywood says about anxiety. So um, some of you, um, you've either watched reruns, you've seen segments on YouTube, or maybe you're old enough to have watched the original Bob Newhart show. So this is a segment from the Bob Newhart show. And let me make sure it comes up here on the screen. Well, that's interesting. We lost our server for a minute there. Okay. So let me Golly, our internet was perfect before you all sat in the room, and I know, I know. And now it's taken an hour and a half to load. We'll use our entire session to, um, to load the internet here. 
Oh, we finally got YouTube up, so we're close. Ha! Here we go. All right, let me enlarge this. Wouldn't that be lovely if we could just stop it? But it doesn't work like that, does it? 
when our mind is cycling in those um, moments of anxiety where we just can't, um, we just can't control it and we can't stop it. Um, gosh, it would be nice to have that simple answer, but we know from our own experience that it just is not that simple. And if we had the will to stop it, we would. Because um, trust me on this, none of us wants to, like she said, be thinking about being buried in a box all the time. Um, none of us would choose to go there if we didn't have to. So I want to talk about some actual biblical characters who suffered from anxiety and depression. And I think, I, I, you know, <laughs> biblically, I just, I mean, you know, this stands to reason. I've, I've you know, worked in ministry most of my life. So when I say this, you're going to go, yeah, duh. Um, but I just love the word of God. And one of the reasons I love it so much is that there's not a single thing in there that doesn't have practical application to our own lives. So as I've studied biblical characters, I'm struck by how many of them dealt with severe depression and anxiety. And some of these um, biblical characters, we don't have a whole lot of information about them. Um, some of them we have chapters and, and several stories, but a lot of them, there's only maybe four or five verses. And it's interesting to me that in, in four or five verses, God chooses to bring out that they were depressed or anxious or sad or, or suicidal. Uh, we're going to look at Elijah who actually said, kill me now. And, uh, you know, we've been there, right? Some of us have, have experienced that. So let's take a look at some of the biblical characters. And as we look at them, we're going to see what they suffered with. But as we go through the session, we're, all gonna, we're also going to look at what strategies did God give them to deal with their anxiety and depression. So the first one I brought up here is Moses. And um, if we look at Numbers 11, 10 through 15, um, I'm sorry, it was Moses who said, kill me now. Elijah, um, uh, we'll get to him in a minute. But Moses said, he's, he spent, you know, this is Moses, 40 years in the wilderness with people, and it talks about them being complaining people. Have any of you lived with a complaining person? It gets old, yeah. Or are any of you one? Let me try, tell you the, like, the other side of it. it. It's difficult to live with somebody who's complaining. And Moses had thousands of them complaining all the time, enough that they were described as a complaining people. And time after time, you know, we can go through chapters of, of stories about the Israelites, and, the, and every chapter follows this same pattern. Oh, God, we love you. And there's blessing and plenty and everything's going great. We get a little complacent. We turn over here to Moloch and sacrifice our children, or we turn to Baal and sacrifice our spouses, which is not necessarily a bad thing for some of us. Uh, but whatever, wherever you are in life, okay, they kept turning away from God. And then as they turned away from God, God would have to step in and he'd have to punish them and remind them, I said, I'm a jealous God. I said, worship me only. And he would remind them of the promises that they'd made. And um, there'd be punishment, and then there'd be contrition. The Israelites would repent, and then it, God is wonderful, and the whole cycle would begin over. So Moses has been living with this cycle for 40 years. 
And he finally gets to the point here in this chapter in Numbers where he literally says these words, God, kill me now. I am so done with this job you gave me. I'm done with these people. Just kill me now because the burden is too great to bear. And some of us hear those words, and we can relate to that, that we are living with a burden that is too great to bear. Or we have loved ones who have said that to us, and we do not know what to do in those circumstances. And, and whether we ourselves or someone we love has gotten to that point where I just can't carry this any longer. Please just kill me now and take away this pain that I carry. So here was Moses, and, and I, I, I relate to that story because there are many times in my life where I've said, this burden is just too much. Whether it's the burden of my anxiety or depression or whether it's a burden of circumstances. And by the way, I should have said this at the beginning, but something for us to think about, every single one of us deals with anxiety. If we think about anxiety on a continuum, we have what I would call situational anxiety, where we're dealing with anxiety over things that seem overwhelming and overpowering. And it may alleviate itself as those situations resolve. And then there's that anxiety that's ongoing. And if we think about it on a continuum, we might have sort of this 1 to 10 um, category, where 10 might be every day I deal with anxiety, and it's to the point where I may be engaging in some OCD behavior. I have to touch all the light switches, or I have to go check and make sure everything's turned off before I can leave the house. And it may even be leading to suicidal ideation and maybe even suicidal attempts. So we have this sort of 1 to 10 continuum. But every one of us, because we're human and we're uh, post-fall, um, deals with anxiety and depression at some level. So. Moses. Then we get to David. Now, if you've spent much time in the Psalms, um, this is another pattern that we see um, from David's voice in the Psalms, where he basically says, oh, dear God, why have you let this fall on me? Why am I bearing this? And if you remember David's story, um, after he is named, basically, as the next king, his life goes to hell in a handbasket, quite frankly. And he's hunted by Saul, and he's homeless. He's, he has no income. He actually steals food out of the temple that's consecrated to God, which actually is a stoning offense because he's starving to death. So that's the life he's living. And this goes on for years. This isn't like you know a couple of months. He just has a, you know, a bad spell. This is years worth of what his life looks like. And so we see these psalms where he's just crying out to God and saying, I'm supposed to be your anointed king, and yet this is how I'm living. From hand to mouth in this depressed existence, I'm living in caves, and I'm hunted like an animal um, for no good reason. And this is what he says in one of these Psalms. Psalm 13, 1 and 2, he says, How long, O Lord? Some of us could say those exact same words, right? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Isn't that sometimes what it feels like in those darkest moments? Like, God, you've just forgotten me. What in the world is going on? I'm supposed to be your chosen child, but it feels like you've forgotten me. 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? If that is not an example of depression and anxiety, I don't know what is. All day long, every day, I just carry this weight with me. So David, next example, this is Elijah, and this is an interesting one. In 1 Kings 19, this is where Elijah um, challenges the prophets of Baal. And so um, do you need to move your chair so you don't have that sun right in your eyes? Okay, all right. Do whatever you need to do. To, okay. okay. Um, I think next chair back is, is not so bad, but you do whatever you need to do for yourself. Um, so he challenges the prophets of Baal. And remember, they're all up there on the mountain, and, and the Baal um, prophets have got altars, and they've sacrificed people and children, and they've torn their flesh and, and um, used knives to slash so their blood is flowing. And they're doing every um, practice they can think of to call down their gods and destroy their sacrifices, and nothing happens. So Elijah over here, he's got his altar, and he's poured tons of water on it and just drenched it. And he says, okay, God, they've done their thing. Time for you to do yours. And God, like miraculous. And all it says all the prophets of Baal at that point, they recognize, it doesn't say they convert, but they recognize that this is the one true God, that Elijah has got the goods. Okay, and so Elijah comes down off of that mountain, and this is like this is the place he is. Like, could life be much more glorious than that? My God just defeated all of you people and showed you up and did what I asked him to do. And he he was present and he showed up and he did what I asked him to do. It's a glorious moment. And he comes down that mountain, and a runner comes to him and he says, "Oh, by the way, Elijah, I'm Jezebel, Ahab's wife, so the queen." Uh, has put a hit out on you. And, oh my gosh, what do you think he does? Do you think he says, my God is so mighty that he just destroyed all these prophets. No big deal. Do your best, Jezebel. No. He says, oh my stars. And he, it says he literally ran for his life. And these are the words that come out of his mouth as he's talking about it. His response, he ran for his life. He thought the battle was up there on Mount Carmel, but the reality is the battle wasn't over. And when he realized that there, this it literally says these words, when he realized there was more fight to come, he was filled with panic and fear. He was worn out, worn down, and afraid. Anybody relate to that? Worn down worn out, and afraid. Let's head to the New Testament and see what we find there. So we have um, Mary. Now, most of us remember Mary's words, you know, like um, uh, her song, and we really, it's so beautiful um, when she finally realizes that, wow, I, I have been blessed, and I'm going to just, you know, kind of own this and move forward in this. Before she gets that, though, before she gets there, this is what happens. Mary hears the angel's words, and it says she was filled with anxiety. She heard those words, and like any of us would, I think, in those circumstances, go, are you kidding me? 
I'm going to what? The Holy Spirit is going to what? I'm going to have a child. I'm not married. I'm going to be ostracized by my community. And it says she was filled with anxiety. And she questioned the angel, and she pushed back. And, and she actually said, what in the world are you thinking? And it says that she was so troubled. Now, we kind of assume that like this was a moment in time, but the verb tenses that are used here imply that this went on for a while. And, and she dealt with this anxiety over this situation of going to be pregnant with the Son of God, whatever that meant. You know, I don't think she fully comprehended one single thing about it, and honestly, who could? So there was Mary in that situation. And one of the reasons why we realized how anxious she was, what were the angel's words to her? Anybody remember what he first said? Don't be afraid. Mary, don't be afraid. You do not have to hold on to this anxiety. You do not have to fear because there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger plan. And Mary had to consciously let go of her fear. So she didn't get to that beautiful song of praise and acclamation of God without some struggle. Next, I want to look at Peter. So this is the passage of scripture where it talks about Peter walking on the water. And what do you remember about that? First of all, what did he see? What did he see? Coming toward him. He sees Jesus walking towards him. And he's like, oh my gosh. And he steps out of that boat and, and he's fixed on Jesus. He has no clue what he's just done. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. And I want us to think about that because later on, um, we're going to actually talk about our focus as a strategy. But as long as Peter was focused on Jesus, what was he able to do? Walk on water. What happened as soon as he noticed the waves, he noticed the wind, he went, holy poo kaka, what in the world am I doing? And what happened? He started to sink. So as soon as his focus shifted, he became a victim to his circumstances. As long as he focused on Jesus, he had the strength and whatever it was that Jesus was providing him to get through that situation and literally to walk on water. So we're going to look more at that as we talk a little bit about focus. But that was Peter. And last but not least, you know, it says that Jesus experienced everything we experienced. So I think it's important to talk about a moment in time when we know that Jesus was experiencing some pretty high anxiety. And of course, this is that moment in the garden when he's praying. And he literally, literally says what to God? What's he ask him to do? Take it away from me. Take it away from me. How many of us have been in those circumstances, whether it's depression or anxiety, and we've said, just take it away from me. Please, dear God, let this end. And Jesus said the exact same things. He did not want to go to the cross. He did, like, could I do it without dying or without bleeding to death or without suffering or without being tortured? Like, he knew what his job was, right? But like any of us, because he was fully human, he knew what he was facing, and he asked God to take it away from him. And the scripture actually says that he was in agony. 
And when you read the Amplified Version, I love the Amplified Version because it'll take the verb that's used and then it gives the definitions of that verb. So these are some of the things. He was in agony. He was deeply distressed. He was anguished almost to the point of death. What he was experiencing, like, like he almost died before he was supposed to die, you know? He was so anxious about what was to come. And his anxiety resulted in him saying, please, God, take this away from me. And you know what happened in that moment? It says that he prayed more intent, intensely. And he knew that God wasn't going to take it away. So what were his next words? Not my will, but yours. And I love this. This is something, again, that we'll focus on as we get into some strategies for how to deal with our anxiety, is that God basically said, Jesus, I'm not going to change your circumstances. You do have to die on the cross. You will be tortured. You will have to go through this. I'm not changing the circumstances. But I will be with you every moment, and I will give you what you need to, to get through this. And sometimes that's what we're hearing. It doesn't feel good enough, quite frankly. We would love those circumstances to be changed. But like Jesus, God is saying, I will be with you. I will be with you. But the circumstances aren't going to change. Remember that verse that says, in this world you will have trouble? You know, we love to hold on to the promises that say, you know, I'm your God, I'm your strength, I'm this, I'm this, I'll be your courage, I'll be your, I'll be your savior. And those are wonderful promises, and we should hold on to them. But that promise is just as true as all the others. In this world, you will have trouble. But I have come, I have overcome the world. So that's the part of the promise we want to hold on to also. So here was Jesus, and it said, in this moment, he, he sweat as though he was uh, drops of blood were coming from him. And yet, he acknowledged in that moment that God was with him. I want to do talk about the flip side, because there are times when anxiety actually has a beneficial component. So this is Paul talking, and he says these words, besides everything else, so, you know, Paul was beaten, he was tortured, he was put in prison, uh, he was whipped. So when he says, besides everything else, that's the, that's the bucket. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. In some versions, actually, this is the, the word where they put in my anxiety over them. My continual, continual anxiety because they're being persecuted. And, and, and it's up to me to give them what they need to face this persecution. So Paul, what he goes on to talk about is how he uses this concern or this anxiety to fuel him to do the hard work that he needs to do. And he uses it to fuel him to face his own persecution and his own um, trouble and trauma. So sometimes it actually has an effect that can spur us towards um, some growth and some change and some benefit in our life. Anxiety isn't always or doesn't have to be destructive. So let's just talk about some of the sources of anxiety. So you tell me, what are some um, reasons that you experience anxiety and or depression? 
Work overload, yes. And sometimes that's situational because we have, you know, we have these peaks and valleys in our work. Sometimes it's long term, it just never seems to end. And oftentimes it can result in something we call compassion fatigue or burnout. Um, so definitely our, our jobs, our work can be um, high anxiety producers. What are some other things? Yeah. Yes, my safety is compromised. And sometimes that's because of your job. Sometimes it's because of people in your life, friends and family who don't feel safe. Um, but somehow your safety is feeling compromised. Yeah. Yes, yes. We deal with a long-term illness. Our bodies are breaking down. We have more autoimmune disease now than we have ever had in the history of the diagnosis. And it just seems to be going up and up and up. And our, our bodies and our environment seems to be breaking down. So we have illness that can be long-term or short-term, but it's definitely anxiety-producing. And I would say attached to that might be finances. Because um, when our health insurance runs out and we've got this long-term illness and we wonder, how in the world are we going to pay for the care we need? How do we find the strength to um, be there for the other person and who is ever there for us? So, so finances and health are often kind of tied hand in hand. Yeah. Losing control, oh my gosh. I don't have that on my list up here, but I'm gonna add that. So thank you for adding that, because that's a absolutely losing control. I put up here our past, and this has a couple of um, uh, ways that it sort of lives out in anxiety. Sometimes it's because our past, we are still carrying guilt and trauma about our past. And by the way, um, there's a, anybody ever heard of ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences? Okay, so ACEs, they've done massive amount of research, and it's wonderful research. If you ever get a chance to look it up, it's worth reading about their research. But basically, they posit that you can't get to adulthood without having trauma in your life. Every one of us has trauma, and trauma often results in anxiety and depression. It's, it's one of the ways our system, our system um, does two things. Our system actually does three things uh, when we're faced with trauma, fight, flight, freeze. And so um, anxiety and depression are basically um, freeze, that's depression, or flight, and fight would be anxiety. Our system is just fighting itself almost. It's almost like a, you could describe it as an autoimmune disease of the soul, um, so to speak. So you can't get to adulthood um, that they posit that you can't get to adulthood without trauma. And anxiety and depression are often a result of trauma as well as substance use um, because we want to, we just want the pain to go away. So, so oftentimes we see those things um, sort of go together as we um, get to adulthood. So our past, sometimes uh, we're living with guilt and trauma from our past. And sometimes it's, we've maybe dealt with the guilt and trauma, but we're still dealing with the consequences of our decisions. And that can create anxiety because we can't change the past, right? So we're still living with the outcome of decisions we made earlier in our life. And there's this sort of ongoing uh, uh, 
trauma, for want of a better word, that's attached to it. So our past can be a source of anxiety and depression. So can our future, <laughs> as well as our present. I should have just put that one up there too. So our future, that worry over what's to come, and I think this is very, um, uh, uh, you find this especially in the senior population, as well as the teen population. Um, and the college, like I'm getting, I'm spending all this money on this education, and there's no jobs out there. Or I'll never get this debt paid off. You know, I'll, I'll have to become a rocket scientist to earn enough money to pay off this debt, and unfortunately, I'm only going to be a preschool teacher. Um, so, you know, <laughs> there's no income. So our future can be a huge source of anxiety. Uh, we talked about this one, finances and health, family and friends, and this is oftentimes related to finances and health too. These are all this, what we call comorbidity, okay? All these things are interrelated. And then work and job, we talked about those two. So those are some real key areas of anxiety. And I'm going to add to my list, lack of control, feeling out of control about things. And that control piece can be related to any of these things on this list, too. Because what we want is to be able to contain the problem. And if we feel like we can't or we don't have the resources to deal with it, then our anxiety levels increase. So let's talk a little bit about what those people we talked about earlier, what are some of the things they did? I want to focus the rest of our time together on what some of the solutions might be and some of the strategies might be that they used as well as things we can use. So what did they do? Well, we already talked a little bit about Peter, and we said that he had to shift his focus. So as long as Peter stayed focused on Jesus, the he was able to deal with the circumstances, right? The wind didn't change. The waves didn't change. He was still on water, which is not a good substance to be walking on. I don't know if any of you have tried it, but it's not, it doesn't work real well. So as long as he stayed focused on Jesus, he was able to overcome the circumstances. They didn't change but something changed for him. As soon as his focus shifted, he started to sink. So I want us to think a little bit about our focus. And there's one other piece of focus that I want to add in here, and that's our focus on others. So focus on Jesus, but this is interesting. It's interesting to me that we're doing brain research now, and it's proving the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Hallelujah. So, of course, no scientists or, you know, most of them won't acknowledge that, but here's the reality. So here, I'm going to read this verse to you. Um, Philippians um, 2, it talks about our focus on others. So Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. So here's the interesting thing that current brain research is telling us. When we focus on others, it literally changes our brain for the good. So we've done um, research studies, and so we know the brain that's anxiety-ridden is red. That's the color it shows up in brain scans. When people do something altruistic, which means they take care of somebody besides themselves, they, the brain literally changes. It goes from green to blue, from red to green to blue. 
And blue is a calming color, like when we look at the healthy brain, um, it's mostly blue. And it might have little patches of red as um, you know, we experience something or we have to stop at a traffic light, there'll be a red um, blob that shows up in your brain if we were doing a scan on your brain. So just stopping at a traffic light can cause some stress. Like, am I going to stop in time? Am I going to hit the car in front of me, which I've done before? Um, <laughs> so that was definitely red. Uh, I know my brain went red at that moment. But all this to say, we actually, not only do we see the change in a scan, but we can measure serotonin and endorphin levels in the body, and those are feel-good um, drugs, literally, that your body, it, it's literally um, the brain's opiate. One of the reasons why people get addicted to opiates <laughs> is because serotonin and endorphins mimic opiates. It's, it's like a brain opiate, and it's, we call it the feel-good drug. And it literally causes um, feelings like love. Anybody been in love? And you know how that, you know, if you, if you haven't been in love, try it. Um, um, but it does something to our body. It literally changes our body chemistry and good things happen. Serotonin and endorphins are these feel-good drugs that our body produces, and that literally increases in our body when we do something for others. So here's our 21st century science proving what Jesus said to us all along, love your neighbor, do good to them, do good to those who hate you even, um, get out there and serve others. It is amazing how it changes your focus, and it actually changes your body chemistry and can counteract feelings of anxiety and depression. It's amazing. So that's one thing we can do. Um, I also think that all of them, I think about David. This was so true in the Psalms. He'd go through this lament. Oh, God, you're far away from me. You're treating me like I'm not even your child, and yet you've said I'm your child, and blah, blah, blah. And he goes through this laundry list of all his grievances, but almost always either starts the psalm with this statement or he ends it or both, bookends the psalm with, but you are God, and you love me, and you're going to take care of me and you're going to fix this situation. Those are my words. I'm paraphrasing um, David's wonderful words. I, sh I should know them all by heart and be able to say David's words, but that's my paraphrase of how David bookends his psalms. Every single one of them begins or ends with a promise that he knows to be true about God, and he affirms that and proclaims it. So here's the reality is that we've got to know those promises before we get into crisis. Because when you're in the midst of an anxiety or a panic attack, that's not the time to go, huh, I think I'll get my act together here and go read some scripture and see if I can find God's promise. It's not going to happen, okay? Our minds are too frantic, and that's not the time to do it. So finding God's promises is one thing that you want to do when you're in some of those moments where you're feeling a little more healthy and a little more uh, uh, in touch with your own, your true self and look into those promises. So Philippians 4, 6, and 7, um, that's, that's where it promises that peace that passes all understanding. And I love this. It talks about um, um, when we think about that verse, it talks about um, 
don't be anxious. A lot of us, um, we learned it in maybe King James or Revised Standard Version, and it uses that phrase, don't be anxious, which sounds like an imperative. What it's actually saying is, when you're anxious, don't hold on to it. That's literally how it translates. It's not God shaming us for being anxious. It's God saying, you're going to feel anxious. And when it happens, can you release it to me? Can you give it to me? And if you do that, there's a promise attached to it. And the promise is what? The peace that passes all understanding. Yeah, guard your hearts and minds. You'll receive this peace that makes no sense. Circumstances won't change, but you'll have an inner resource to be able to deal with the circumstances. It's a promise, and it's something we can hold on to. Hebrews 13.6 says this, we can confidently say, well, when you start out a verse like that, that's pretty good. We can confidently say, the Lord, I sought the Lord, he is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? There is not a circumstance on this earth that can actually overpower you. Feels like it many times, but there actually is nothing that can overpower you. Hebrews 13.6. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And the rest of it says, I sought the Lord. He heard me. And this is the promise I adore. He delivered me from all my fears, plural. That's a verse I want to hide in my heart. And I want to be able to pull that out in those moments when I feel like life is overwhelming. My head is frantic. And I cannot, I cannot... Uh, figure out what to do about this thing or how to stop myself. And I have, to, I have to write it down and put it someplace that I can get my hands on it easily. Maybe it's a little post-it that's on the mirror in my bathroom, and it's also in my car, and it's, it's on my desk at work. Um, but, but when I'm in that moment, I can, I can read that, and I can hold on to that promise that says, what's it say? It's over here says that I can confidently say he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So there are promises in the word of God, and those promises are something that we really want to hold on to. We want to know them. That's all from Hebrews 13, yeah, 13, 6. So this is another one I love, um, 1 Peter 5, 7. Um, so... <laughs> This is the one that says, throw all your anxiety on him. This is literally the active, the active verb. This is what it means. Not just, it means <laughs> throw, like, like literally with all your strength, throw it. To who? Throw all your cares on him. And then what's it say is going to happen as a result of that? It says that our anxiety will be released, reduced. 
And we will, again, this is another one of those places where it talks about God's peace entering in. But I just love that. When I read that and when I studied it and I understood how active that verb was, not just the toss off of my anxiety, but to literally throw all my anxiety at Jesus and allow him to take it. Wow, that was life-changing for me. So shift the burden. And this, again, it's not just this passive um, handoff. It's not the baton handoff. It's literally tossing it to Jesus. And then last but not least, they affirmed those promises that they read. So that was David again. You know, when we think about him getting to the end of his lament and still affirming God's truth, there's something in the affirmation of God's promises. Um, and, and this is an affirmation. I'm going to read this from Revelations 21.4. Now, this is talking about the moment in time when we meet Jesus. And for some of us, it's tough to realize I might have a lifetime of anxiety and, and have to wait until the other side of heaven to have this released. But I read this first and I thought, you know what? I could hold on to this because in this world I will have trouble. And this, that's just part of life. But here's what I'm promised. He will wipe away every tear will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have all passed away. What I feel, the, the anxiety I feel, the depression I feel, what you feel, what you experience, it will be a former thing, and we will have a lifetime of never having to think about it again. We will have an eternity of never, ever thinking about it again. This life is such a fleeting breath. It's such a fleeting moment. It feels long. What was that phrase that she used today? The days are long, but the years are short. Um, and I think about that as I think about anxiety and depression. And yeah, some of the days are long. The moments that you're, you're in the midst of it, it feels long. But the years are short. And there will be a moment in time when God promises me, I will wipe it all away. And you will never have to deal with it. You won't even remember it. Because it will be no more. So affirm God's truth and affirm those promises. These are some strategies that they use throughout the Bible. We see, we see time and again Moses, Elijah, Jesus, all of them using these same strategies as they dealt with the circumstances of their own lives and continued to um, work through, work through those things. What was that last passage? It was from Revelation 21.4. So I want to talk about this. This is, I think that there's literally a game plan. And I'm going to put this game plan up, you, it's, uh, up here. It's taken from Matthew, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And this is the game plan. Come to me. That's the first thing Jesus says. Okay, first of all, let's get it straight. Where's your focus? Come to me. Take my yoke. 
Now, I read this and I went, you know what, Lord, that one, I don't know, I'm not so sure about a yoke because anxiety feels like enough of a yoke, okay? Like a yoke feels heavy and burdensome to me. And I didn't initially get this, um, this image didn't resonate for me because I thought, wow, a yoke feels really hard. Like, why are you asking me to put on a yoke? I get it's your yoke, but still. And then I started to read about what happens for a horse when they're in a yoke. So if you think about, I was researching Clydesdale. By the way, there's a wonderful Clydesdale rescue farm in the um, Carmel Valley area. And if you, I think it's Carmel Valley. If you haven't heard about um, uh, horse therapy, it's really good for anxiety and depression. So if you can get there, it's wonderful. But anyway, um, as I was researching this, um, I, I was reading about these Clydesdales. And um, one horse harnessed, so in its own yoke, in an individual yoke, can pull about 8,000 pounds. That's a lot, <laughs> okay? Two horses harnessed together, so yoked together, you know how much they can pull? 28,000 pounds. So it's not just doubled, it's tripled. And then I, I went, oh my gosh, so Jesus, that's what you're telling me. When I'm yoked in your yoke, we got three times the ability. It's not just doubling my strength even, it's three times as much. And Jesus is you know, all about infinity, so I'm thinking, if a Clydesdale can triple their strength just being yoked together, what could I do when I'm actually yoked with Jesus and I take his yoke on me instead of whatever I'm carrying? So I, I was like, that really helped me with this whole idea of a yoke. So come to me, take my yoke, learn from me. So that goes back again to, do I know God's promises? Am I spending time trying to find out what his promises to me are? And I am, am I affirming them? Think on. So now here's what we're encouraged to think on. Going back to Philippians, by the way, this is kind of our key chapter, Philippians 4. So this is what it, it gets to 8 and 9. So it's talking about anxiety and, you know, give it to God. And this is what it says in verses 8 and 9. Whatever is true. Now I want to ask you this. When you're in the midst of anxiety, panic attack, depression, are you thinking about what's true? Absolutely not. We have bought into the lie at that point in time. So I looked at that and I went, wow, i got to replace that lie with God's truth. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. That was a nice one for me because I thought I can picture loveliness maybe in the midst of um, my depression or anxiety, can I think of something lovely instead of where I'm dwelling in the moment? Whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, think on these things. Wow. Think on these things. Don't think on the situation. Don't think on what's, what's facing you. Jesus was facing death on the cross. And, and I think about him in that moment. I'm thinking he maybe went here. 
he maybe went to how much God, his, his daddy, loved him and how much he loved every one of us. And maybe he thought about his resurrection because he, he had foreknowledge, human and God. He knew that there was going to be a good outcome eventually, and he was going to have to suffer in between that moment and that great outcome. And he didn't forego that suffering in order to get to what was beneficial. And I think the only way he probably was able to do it is to think on these things and not on that moment in time. It's how he was able to hang there on that cross and forgive those people who had crucified him because they didn't know what they were doing because he was thinking on these things. And then it says, last but not least, and this is the last part of our game plan, practice these things. See, again, I want to go back to the moment to practice isn't when we're in the midst of the struggle. The moment to practice is when I'm calm and when, I, when I'm, like I said, when I'm in my true self and not in my anxiety self or not in my depression self. The moment to practice is when I am in that calm state and I can begin to look at the promises, I can begin to affirm the pro promises, and I can practice so that when I'm in the midst of the struggle, you know, how many times does it talk about Jesus going off by himself, going off to pray, going off to have time with his dad, and, and, and how often he took time just with the disciples, he got away from the crowds, and he, and he practiced so that when he got to the moment of crisis, he was able to put into practice what felt normal and natural for him. So we've got to practice so that when we're in the crisis, it's just second nature to put God's promises into play and to affirm God's promises. So what I want to do with this time that's left is actually do some practice ourselves and think about some things that we can do and practice when we're in safe, calm places so that we can put these things into play when we need them. So the first thing I put up here was breathing. And this is another one of those, you know, science has proved what Jesus, what God already said. So um, think about God's creation of the earth. What does it say he did as he created the earth? He breathed. There is something about breath. Of course, we know it's life-giving, right? When Marnie shared that story about her daughter, I went into panic mode myself because my, my daughter and I both have, and my mom, another generational thing, we have something called laden factor five, and it means that we blood clot, uh, uh, we overclot. You too? Hey, yeah, sister. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, you know, it could be a death threat at any time. Yeah, isn't that, yeah, nice to know, yeah. So anyway... My daughter came to me in this same circumstance. Mommy can't breathe. She'd had a cold. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, did it go into pneumonia? Like, what's going on? And we're doing all the things to treat, like, a bad cold or potentially pneumonia. And finally, in the middle of the night, it always happens in the middle of the night, right? Um, she's like, Mom, I just I can't breathe. There's nothing I'm doing that's making it any better. It's just getting worse, and it hurts so bad. And so we go to the emergency room, and they start running tests, and same thing, I'm thinking, my daughter's dying. 
Like, my daughter's going to die. And it turns out that she had a blood clot in her lungs, which could be a death sentence. But fortunately, we caught it in time, and they were able to a week of um, heparin and blah, blah, blah. So all that to say, I, I get what this feels like to not have breath. And the idea that breath is life is so very biblical. I mean, it was God who breathed on the earth and it separated the dark and the light. And he breathed on the earth and it separated from earth and, and water. And he breathed into Adam and he created life. Oh my gosh, there's something so powerful about God's breath and God's breath in us. That song that we sang today, um, how, you know, it's your breath in my lungs. So I thought, isn't this interesting, once again, that science is telling us how amazing breath is. So we know, literally, that when you take a deep breath and you blow out, you're breathing in all this good stuff, and you're blowing out carbon dioxide, and what literally happens in your brain is, again, you release serotonin, endorphins, and it goes from that red to that blue state, and the body calms. And something that it does, um, when we're anxious, we have high cortisol, and, and you know we all know this, and related to high stress, our blood pressure goes up, our, our breathing is, is uh, erratic, and, and what taking a deep breath and just one cleansing breath, one cleansing breath can literally change our brain, and it changes our cortisol level and actually calms us. One cleansing breath. So I'm going to just take us through a little breathing activity, and we're going to go back, and we're going to say that verse that we saw earlier that was, um, the Lord is my helper. Um, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And we're going to do that with our in and out breaths. So what I'd like you to do, if you're okay doing this, if you're not, that's okay, because not all of us are comfortable doing this maybe in front of others. Um, but just kind of center yourself in your seat. Push your, push your butt back. Um, put your feet flat, unless you're like me and your feet don't reach the ground when you're sitting. Um, and, and put your hands wherever it's kind of comfortable on your lap. Some people like to just lay them at their sides. Some people will lay them um, on, their, on their knees or on their thighs. And then um, I, I would like you to close your eyes, but again, if you're not comfortable with that, the next best thing is to actually do what we call a soft focus. So find a spot and just kind of don't look at a thing, but find a spot and just kind of let your eyes go a little hazy. You know how we go into sort of Neverland when um, we're sort of staring at something. So do that soft focus. But if you can't close your eyes, that's better because you're not distracted by other people. And I'm going to say these words. And as I say them, I want you to breathe in when I say, um, the Lord is my helper. I'm going to take an, an in-breath. Out-breath, I will not fear. In-breath, what can man? Out-breath, do to me. And let's just do that together a couple times. So I'll say the words, you do the breathing. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? When you're ready, open your eyes. How do you feel right now? Kind of nice, huh? It's a little peaceful. And this is something, we, we've, we've done this with people in the midst of an anxiety or a panic attack and literally watch their entire body um, change and their mind change. And you know, we teach it to our kids, we call it mindful self-regulation, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reclaiming it because God did it first. <laughs> Breathing. Another thing, we've really been talking about this throughout the whole time. This is related to promises and affirmation. But we need to know our scripture. And um, I think tomorrow morning they're going to do that session on, like, how do you study the Bible? How do you get into the Word of God? That might be a great follow-up for this session. Um, because a lot of us, you know, we can be in churches nowadays and never even open our Bible. Um, my my um, granddaughter has been in church her whole life, and I can honestly tell you that she probably could not find most of the books in the Bible. If I said, open your Bible to John 3.16, she'd be fluffing all over the place because we never bring Bibles to church anymore, and we don't encourage people to get into the Word of God. So I encourage you to get into your scripture, and even if it's only, you know, five verses. I'm not even talking about memorizing them. I, I'm terrible. Uh, my memory is truly like a sieve, it, and not even a good sieve, a sieve that's really broken and has really big holes in it. Um, and so it's like, mess. stuff's just falling out everywhere. And so I write stuff on post-it notes, and I, and I keep it um, um, present that way and remind myself of the truth of Scripture, those promises, and then I affirm them to myself as I need them. There's one thing I, I want to talk about here, and our time is actually up, so I'm sorry I'm keeping you just a little late. Um, the... the um, one thing that I found when I'm really, really in those moments when I'm having a hard time um, finding any point of control, and it's beyond my ability to even go, like, get that posted and read that scripture, I just speak the name of Jesus. There's something, you know, again, back to that song, that it's so powerful, the name of Jesus. And there are moments when that's all I can do is just say, Jesus. Jesus, and I call in his name. And something that's been beautiful for me, um, when you call in the name of Jesus, your own thing will happen, I guarantee you. But what um, Jesus has done for me in those moments when it feels so dark that that's all I can cling to is his name, is what happened the first time, and it's happened since then, is that he literally brought a picture into my mind, not of himself, because I don't have any clue what he really looks like, of my daughter and my granddaughter. And in that moment, when I saw their faces as I'm calling on the name of Jesus, I remembered my purpose. And that was what was so beautiful for me, is that I could attach for my reason for being. And I could... Remember that my daughter and my granddaughter are my purpose in life and how much I love them and how much they love me. And that was all I had to cling to in those moments. It's many times what I still cling to um, when it's so difficult to even get my mind ordered around 
something more tangible like a promise and affirming that promise. So don't forget just the simple name of Jesus. It's the most powerful thing we have. And again, scripture brings us truth. And last but not least, our actions. Again, we have to practice this. We have to put this into practice. I want to end with this last picture. This is a woman with a big burden, right? And sometimes what we do is we put stuff in the sack, and then we go take it back, and this is what we end up with. Um, relapse is a part of life. That's a reality. Um, we all have good days and bad days, and some days we're more able to attach to these strategies and put them into practice, and other days we're just carrying around our sack of, of stuff. And so when you feel like this, this is what I want to encourage you to do. I got myself, it was as simple as I got myself a brown paper bag. And I wrote on the bag, God's got this. And those things that felt really overwhelming to me, when I had a moment of sanity around them, I would write them on a piece of paper, and I'd crumple them up, and I'd put them in my bag. And sometimes, I would go get them and pull them back out. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Like that woman, I was still carrying around the sack, OK? Um, they'll go back to that picture. So, so I, I was burdened like this. But as time would go on, I go, okay, I don't, I just don't want this burden anymore. And Jesus has promised to take this burden, so I'm going to crumple it back up and I'm going to put it back in my bag. And and that's been something that has been a strategy. It might be something that works for you, whether that's a brown paper bag or whether you just put it right into the trash pail or whatever you do with it. I would, I would encourage you to just do some something tangible that um, is the place where you put the stuff and when you're giving it to God. And just if you take it back, at some point, release it back to that place again. Uh, occasionally what I do with my bag is I go through and I burn this stuff in it so that uh, it's a visual reminder. It's a very tangible reminder to me that I've given this to God. I don't have to keep agonizing over it. I don't have to keep carrying it with me. So I keep my God's got this bag, and I put my stuff in there um, so that I'm not carrying around that burden, a nice tangible reminder. Thank you all for your time. We're going to go eat more. Um, and then after we have the evening session, we're going to have a snack. So I'm telling you, it's, it's wonderful to walk so much, but I find that I never lose weight here because I'm eating constantly. So thank you again for your time. Um, I, I hope, thank you. I hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the weekend. So thank you.